I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word, open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. This chapter really represents a shift in the story of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2 is about God's creation of the world. God creates a world. He calls it good. He creates the first humans, Adam and Eve. He puts them into the Garden of Eden, gives them a job to do and uh, creates the first marriage. So here you have the first married couple, Adam and Eve, living under the rule and reign of God in a, in a garden. God looks at all of that and says it's good. And he calls Adam and Eve to a life of obedience under his, under his authority and under his kingship. In Genesis 3, conflict enters the story, a disruption, darkness and shame enter and you move from creation to what I'm calling the crash. Theologians will call this the fall of mankind. When Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God, choose to live life their own way. And Genesis 3 is the story of that rebellion. It's really the story of how Adam and Eve are tempted to rebel and then they how, how they give into that temptation to rebellion. Genesis 3 is, however, more than just a dusty old story about our first human parents. It is in a way an origin story. It actually teaches us something about ourselves. It teaches us about how Satan tempts us to rebel as well because Satan's temptations are not new. He functions the same way that he functioned in Genesis 3. And the truth is, if you and I were in Adam and Eve's place, we would have done the same thing if we were in their situation. This is an origin story. It does show us how we all fall prey to temptation and rebellion. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, how Satan tempts us to rebel, how he did that with our first human parents, but how he continues to do that in your life and my life today. I hope that you know that you have an enemy who is alive and well. You have an adversary you have an opponent, opponent, Satan hates you. Every morning when Satan gets up and puts his pants on one leg at a time and gets his coffee going, he has a mission, and that is to take you down. If you name the name of Christ, he's put a target on your back. I've told you this a hundred times if I've told it to you once. You need to realize you have an adversary who wants to take you down. Satan hates you. He wants to destroy your soul. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your future. And he has been at work from, the, from Genesis chapter 3 onward, trying to get us to rebel against a good God who loves us. We're introduced to him in chapter 3 and verse 1 as someone who is crafty and cunning, that's important to realize because Satan is not always very overt or obvious in the way that he works. He's often subtle and stealthy. He is cunning and crafty. And you see that in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent, uh, who is emblematic of Satan here, was the most cunning or the most crafty of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Satan's tactics for you, in other words, are not always out front and obvious. Satan often works in stealth to try to take you down. Uh, you know, there, if you look at the history of uh, modern warfare, uh, the tactics of war have, have evolved over time. Uh, several hundred years ago, if you were gonna go to battle against somebody, you would have a, you know, a line of troops that would march out onto the battlefield and they would, they would be in a line and then you'd have the opposing troops march out in a line on the battlefield and they would stand a certain distance away and they would take turns shooting at each other. You know, so here's team one and they shoot a volley of musket rifle, you know, musket bullets, whatever. And then team two shoots back. Now, 
Now, that's very gentlemanly and also a terrible way to do battle. You know, like, okay, we're going to shoot you, and then it's your turn to shoot us, and we'll stand here. It's very upfront. It's very obvious. We're going to come out into the open, and we're going to shoot each other. Well, military strategists have realized there are better ways of doing battle. So they figured out more stealthy ways of, of attacking one another and doing surprise attacks and, and booby traps and all kinds of other things. And, and so, for instance, you have uh, the emergence in, uh, of the submarine in World War I, the first major war where a submarine was used. And, and the submarine was great because it was a, surprise, it was a way of, of uh, conducting surprise attacks. You could be stealthy. You could hunt a battleship. A battleship is on, on the way somewhere and has no idea that there is a submarine that is stealthily creeping behind to attack. That's how Satan functions in temptation and rebellion. He's very rarely overt and obvious. Normally, he is subtle and stealthy. He is cunning. He is crafty. He is sneaky. And that's what we see right here in Genesis chapter 3. Really what you have in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, which is what we're going to look at this morning, you have an anatomy of rebellion. If you want to see how temptation and rebellion work, not only in the lives of Adam and Eve, but how temptation and rebellion works in your life today and in my life today. In other words, what are Satan's tactics to sneak attack us? This is an anatomy of rebellion. This is how it's done. And so I want there, you to see several things. I'm going to read through these first eight verses, and I want you to see how Satan tempts us to rebel. But also, even in these first eight verses, there are glimpses of hope for us today that I don't want you to miss as well. So let me read beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was the most cunning, the most crafty of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say... You can't eat from any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the, the, the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, okay, that would be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. As a matter of fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them, both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves." Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. All right, so there's several things I want you to see as we walk step by step through Eve's encounter with this serpent, as we look at this anatomy of rebellion, as we think about how Satan, our enemy, attacks his prey. The first thing I want you to notice that happens in this uh, this passage is that Satan begins by questioning God's word. And rebellion always starts that way with an attempt to make us doubt the word of God. In fact, if you're taking notes, you can just write out in the margin of your Bible, doubt, because that's what Satan is doing. Satan begins, it's interesting, not with a philosophical argument against 
the existence of God. He doesn't begin with an assertion of any sort. He begins with a question. Did God really say? And folks, when Satan tempts us to rebel, it usually begins by inserting doubt in our mind about the the nature of who God is and what God has said. That's Satan's strategy. This is a question that is meant to undermine Eve's trust in a good God who had made her and called her to obey. God had made his word unequivocally clear. One of the key themes in Genesis 1 and 2 is the word of God. God speaks, God commands, God calls, God names, God gives a commission. God's word is loud and clear in the first two chapters. But now in chapter 3, there's the words of the enemy that get spoken. And these words are intended to undermine the word of God. And the way that Satan intends to undermine the word of God is always to cause us to doubt the word of God by questioning it. Now, you might be asking at this point or wondering in your mind, pastor, does that mean that it's not okay to ask questions of God or that maybe doubt is some kind of problem? I don't think that that's what the word is teaching here at all. I think that asking God questions is a good thing. And God is big enough to handle your deepest questions, all right? God is not scared by any of our questions. And if you have big questions, God is exactly who you need to bring those questions to. And there is nothing wrong with doubt. Doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. If you talk to somebody and they say they never have any doubts, then they're probably not being super honest with themselves or with you. All right, doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. So the problem is not questions and the problem is not doubt. But not all questions are created equal. There's a difference between asking a question in order to know or in order to understand and asking a question in order to undermine. Now, see, that's what's happening in Genesis 3. This is not a question that's desiring an answer. This is not a question that's designed to push you towards God. It's a question that's designed to push you from God. It's a question that's designed, has no interest in the answer. It's a question that's designed to undermine. If you've ever been in a classroom of any sort, you've seen these two types of questions on display, right? There's the the student who raises the hand and genuinely wants to know the answer. It's an honest question. They want to know the answer. They want to seek understanding. That's a good question. And we have all kinds of questions for God of this manner. But you've probably all also seen the student who raises their hand to ask a quote-unquote question, but they're really not asking the question. They're really more making a point with the question. Anybody ever seen that happen before? It's like they're not really genuinely looking for an answer. They're more voicing their opinion about something disguised as a question. In other words, the question has an agenda. See? Now, that's what's happening in Genesis 3. This is not a, a real desire to know or understand or come to God with an honest question. This is a question with an agenda. It's a question that's designed to undermine trust in God. Did God really say? And <clears throat> that is how Satan works today. He wants to implant doubts in your mind. He wants to undermine your trust in God. And that usually begins by causing you to question. It's interesting, Satan He's cunning. He is crafty. This is very sneaky. If he just came out and said, there is no God, probably you would throw all kinds of flags up and say, no, that that can't be true. But if instead he can become a little more sneaky, a little more subtle and get you to question, well, did God really say? Now, that's a tactic that might work. We often ask that same question. Is this really so bad? Uh, Doesn't God want me to be happy? 
Uh, is it really that important that God said this? It's interesting that <clears throat> Satan doesn't begin with a full frontal assault on God's word, but rather a question mark over what God has said. I, I, I was talking about this passage with Jeffrey Davis, our Marshall campus pastor this week, and he, he put this so well. He said, Satan doesn't start by selling sin, but by questioning the creator. He, he doesn't come to say, okay, run from God, you know, it's sell, you know, buy what I'm selling here. He begins by just questioning the creator. Did God really say this? <clears throat> uh, Amy and I were talking about this passage this morning. She, she brought up a great uh, point from the story of Zechariah and Mary. Uh, you know, you have, uh, in the story of Zechariah and Mary, you have two uh, miraculous births. God comes to Zechariah and says his wife, Mary, is going to have a son named John. And then he comes to Mary and says she's going to have a son named Jesus. Two unlikely births, miraculous births. And then Zechariah and Mary both respond with a question. How is this going to happen? Zechariah says, how is this going to happen? My wife is old. And then Mary says, how can this happen? I've not been with a man. So both ask the same question. In one case with Zechariah, he gets a judgment. He's, he becomes mute until the baby is born. In Mary's case, she gets a blessing. Now, what's the difference? Well, it has to do with the intent of the question. And Satan will often try to get you to question God in order to undermine your faith, to, to question the Creator's goodness. You know, if you've ever been in sales, it helps when you're trying to sell a product to make someone dissatisfied with what they have, right? So the reason you need the iPhone 500 or whatever it is on now <laughs> is because your old iPhone 6, you know, can't get all the apps, and so you can't play all the games. And so you need to become, and so the tactic is become dissatisfied with what you've got so that you'll buy the thing that's being sold. That's Satan's tactic here. Question the creator's goodness. Question the creator's word so that you'll become dissatisfied and buy <clears throat> what he's selling. But then he goes and does more than that. Not only does rebellion question God, cause doubt in God's word, but then rebellion <clears throat> twists twists. That is, Satan wants not only to cause you to doubt God's word, but he then distorts God's word. Look what happens again in verses 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Uh, it says, he says to the woman, the servant says to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. All right, now in these three verses, God's word is referenced three times, okay, in one way or the other, but not once is it quoted accurately. And I want you just to pay attention. It's very easy to kind of read right over these verses and miss what's going on. In every case that God's word is mentioned in these three verses, God's words are either removed, minimized, or added to, okay, both from the serpent and from, from Eve. For instance, in verse 1, the serpent says to Eve, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, uh, true or false, is that what God actually said? False, right? I would encourage you to go back to Genesis 2 and look at what God told Adam and Eve. 
Nowhere in Genesis 2 did he say you can't eat from any tree of the garden. In fact, he said the exact opposite. In chapter 2 and verse 16, these are God's actual words. You are free to eat from any tree of the garden. That's chapter 2, verse 16. God says you're free to eat from any of the trees except for one. But then when the serpent quotes that back to Eve, he flips it on its head. He says, no, God, God didn't say you can eat freely from any tree. He says you can't, free, you can't eat from any tree. You see, it's a twisting of the word of God. It's a, a distortion of what God had said. And then look at this interaction with the woman. In verse 2, the woman says to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So I want you to notice three things. She, she removes some words, she minimizes some things, and she adds some words. What does she remove? Well, a couple of things. She says in verse 2, we may eat the fruit. We may eat the fruit, okay? We may eat. How many words is that? Three. If you look in chapter 2, verse 16, what God actually says is you may freely eat. How many words is that? Four. She pulls one off. God says, look at my abundant provision for you. You may freely eat from any tree of the garden. When Eve is remembering it, she forgets the freely part. She removes a word. She minimizes God's provision. Then she weakens the consequence. Notice in verse 3, God says, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. All right, that's not exactly what God said. In chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, you can eat from any, freely from any tree of the garden except for this one tree. And if you eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what he actually said is, you will, can you see it there? Certainly die. Now, there's, words matter, right? There is a certainty of a consequence. God is saying, you will certainly, without a doubt, die. When Eve is recalling God's word, she removes the word certainly. She is weakening the consequence. And then she adds a word. Notice again, chapter 3, verse 3, about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Again, I encourage you to go back to Genesis chapter 2, and what you'll find there is God never said, don't touch the tree. He only said, don't eat from the tree. But when Eve is telling the serpent what God said, she adds to the word of God. She says, he told me I can't eat it and I can't touch it. She is, some, someone has said that she is the first legalist she is adding to the restriction. She is adding to the command. She is trying to make God seem more restrictive than he actually is. She's saying, not, not only can I not eat it, can you just hear her pout in this? I can't eat it. I can't even touch it. Well, God didn't say don't touch it. You're adding that. You know, it's like with kids. You tell them, I'm not saying you can never eat. I'm just saying you can't have a snack right now. Eve here either removes or weakens or minimizes or adds to the word. Never once does she or the serpent accurately represent what God has said. And she's even adding to what he said, making the limitation greater than it is. The, the Pharisees, by the way, did this very same thing uh, all the time with all kinds of things. But let me give you one example. The Sabbath, right? The Sabbath, God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Right? Well, the, the Pharisees began to add to that. And by the time you get to Jesus's day, not, not only were you supposed to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but the, the, the Pharisees had added all kinds of other laws 
like how many steps that you could take on the Sabbath day. You couldn't take more than a certain number of steps. What kind of food you could cook on the Sabbath day. Uh, Whether or not you could build a fire. You were not allowed to cook with a fire on the Sabbath day because that was considered, you know, working on the Sabbath. That's not actually in your Bible, okay? That's just Pharisees who were like adding to the law. So the idea, this is called hedging the law. So it's like, okay, here's God's boundary, here's God's limitation, and the Pharisees built a fence 10 feet further out from God's boundary because they didn't want to cross the boundary, so they created a hedge, they created a fence. I'm not even gonna get close to crossing God's boundary, so I'm gonna create the boundary way over here and I'm not even gonna cross that. That's called legalism. Not only am I not gonna disobey God, but I'm going to create all kinds of other rules that you have to follow and that you have to obey. That's hedging the law. Eve was the first person to do that by adding to God's word to make him sound more restrictive. All right, so rebellion questions, then it twists. Here's the third thing that happens. Rebellion eventually will contradict the word of God. It it will not just cause you to doubt the word of God. It will not just distort the word of God, but eventually it will deny the word of God. And that's what happens in verse four. Look at what happens in verse four. She says, look, if I eat this or, or touch it, she's adding here, but I'll, I'll die. And listen to what the servant says in verse 4. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. This is a flat-out contradiction of God's word. In fact, it, it pops out in Hebrew because in Hebrew, in chapter 2 and verse 17, this is what God says. You will certainly die. In chapter 3 and verse 4, this is the way it reads literally. The serpent says, not you will certainly die. It's like the serpent is saying, God has said this is so. I am just telling you not this is so. What God's word says here is not true. And folks, eventually that's what rebellion will do. It will not just question the word of God. It will not just twist or distort the word of God. But eventually you will be forced with the decision of whether or not I'm going to deny the word of God or contradict the word of God. That's Satan's strategy here to flat out contradict what God has said. God says this is true. Satan says this is not true. God says this will happen. Satan says this won't happen. That's a contradiction of the word of God, which is always involved in rebellion. Now, notice what the contradiction actually is. God says, if you eat this, you will certainly die. And the serpent says, no, you, you will not die. Now, notice what, he's, what, notice what he's doing there. He's saying, you can sin without consequence. You can rebel and nothing's going to happen to you. You can choose to run from God. You won't die. He, he is denying the reality of God's judgment for sin. He is saying you can do whatever you want and there will be no consequences. Does that not sound like America in 2023? That's the lie we are being told, that any choice we make whatsoever is acceptable as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. And the idea is that you can sin without consequences. Folks, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It began in Genesis chapter 3. God says there are consequences when you sin. If you sin, it leads to death. This is what Romans 6.23 says. The wages of sin is death. Proverbs 14.20, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Satan comes in and says, you can do whatever you want. There won't be a consequence. Folks, that is deceptive. That is a lie. Your sin has consequences. 
it has an ultimate consequence. The ultimate consequence is death and judgment by a holy God. One day, every one of us will stand and give an account before God. That is the ultimate consequence. But there are immediate consequences. There are near-term consequences to sin. I, I will never forget a godly professor I had in Bible college named Jim Bryant, who's passed away and gone on to be with the Lord now. But uh, Dr. Bryant was a godly, older pastor, loved the Lord, and was teaching us, uh, me and 25 other young guys, in a pastoral ministry class. And he just said, look, I want you to, to think more seriously than you've ever thought about before the consequences of your sin as a pastor. Because Satan will try to get you to think that your sin only affects you. That's the lie. There are no consequences beyond me. But he said, I want you to go home and your homework assignment is to draw concentric circles of all the people that your sin as a public Christian leader will affect. So circle number one, right, is yourself. There are consequences that each individual will experience. Circle number two, your spouse, right? If I sin, my, it's not just me that's affected. It's my wife, Amy, that's affected. Circle number three, my children. I've got four of them who, who look at me, watch me, look up to me. They will be affected. My circle number, whatever, four or five? My kids' friends. How about my neighbors? How about the church? How about the community? Right? The, the ripple effects of sin are far-reaching. And we ought to think seriously about that, whether you're a pastor or not. Our sin has consequences. The contradiction from the enemy is to say you can sin without consequence. There's something else here. Rebellion justifies. When Satan tempts you to rebel, it's very common to justify your sin. And we actually see that happening in, in this interaction with Eve as well. Look, look at what happens. <clears throat> Uh, verse 4 and 5 and 6. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. Verse 5. In fact, God knows that when you eat, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. Right? You take the fruit and you'll really be able to see. Uh, God's way is, is backwards. It's, it's blindness. You come to me, you do what I ask you to do, your eyes will be opened. You'll experience enlightenment. You'll be able to see. And You'll be like God. That's the essence of all sin, right, is I become master. I take the throne. And you will know good and evil. Verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Now look at the language there. It's good for food, delightful to look at, desirable to obtain wisdom. That all sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It sounds appetizing. It sounds appealing. And folks, that's how Satan sells sin to us. He makes it look appetizing. It looks good for food. It looks delightful to the eyes. It looks desirable for obtaining wisdom. This is the way that Satan always tempts us. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, uh, the word talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And if you think about it, every sin comes down to one of these three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Think about it in Genesis 3. The lust of the flesh, she saw it was good for food. The lust of the eyes, she saw it was delightful to look at. 
the boastful pride of life, she saw that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. The temptation of Jesus functions the same way. You'll find all three of those in the temptation of Jesus. That's how Satan tempts us. We wouldn't sin if it wasn't pleasurable or attractive. And part of how Satan sells sin to us is by making it look good. That's the way Eve is seeing the fruit. Good, delightful, desirable. And these are, you know, rational reasons to sin. In, in Eve's mind, these are justifications for doing this. It's good for food. I'm hungry. It's delightful to look at. It's beautiful. It's desirable to make me wise. I mean, who doesn't want to be wise? These are justifiable kinds of reasons. But folks, these are justifications for sin, and it's a lie. But that's Satan's tactic to get us to justify our sin. And it's amazing. If you ever see someone who's wandering from God and choosing a life of sin, and you start having a conversation to urge them to come back to the Lord, how many justifications and excuses you'll hear. And often many of those justifications are rational. You know, doesn't God want me to be happy? Isn't God for me? Doesn't God want me to be free? You'll hear all of these justifications and rationalizations and excuses to sin, but that's one of Satan's tactics. By the way, where's Adam in all of this? The text actually tells us he's with her. Chapter 3, verse 6. And apparently, Eve needs to be convinced. Adam doesn't even need to be convinced. He just conforms. Passive. Stands idly by. I mean, you should read this text and say, where's the godly husband? Leading his wife, protecting his wife, intervening on behalf of his wife, pushing back against the darkness. Where's Adam in this? He just stands there passively. And they both together decide to eat the fruit. A conscious decision to disobey God, to rebel against a good God who loved them. What happens next? Well, the final thing I want you to see as we look at this anatomy of rebellion is that they begin to try to cover and hide. They begin to try to cover and hide. It says in verse 6 that Eve took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Now, that's what Satan said would happen, right? He said, your your eyes will be open. And their eyes were open. What what they saw brought them shame. They saw that they were naked. Now, chapter 2, verse 25, they were naked without shame. Now their eyes are open. They see their nakedness and they, they experience shame for the first time. So what do they do? They try to cover. It says they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. They become aware of their their shame and they build these clothes out of leaves to try to cover over their nakedness and shame. And then they hide. Verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and they, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Here's what happens when you question God's word and then twist God's word and then flatly contradict God's word and justify your rebellion and finally decide to disobey God. Eventually, when you realize what you've done, you will try to fix it. You will try to cover it. You will try to hide. That's what's happening in these verses. They are trying to take their own human efforts to fix what they've done. They try to make these inadequate clothes. We know that they're inadequate clothes because God is going to provide clothing for them at the end of Genesis 3 uh, from animal skins. So this is inadequate. This is like a very paltry effort to try to cover up their mistake. 
They become full of regret and shame. And by the way, do you you just catch the irony in all of this? They want to see. Now they don't want to be seen, so they cover. They want to be like God, but now they hide from God in the trees. There's lots of irony and regret and shame. Here they are hiding in the garden, the Garden of Eden, Eden, which means pleasure in Hebrew. This garden that was meant to be for their flourishing has become a place of fear. This place that was supposed to be full of pleasure has now become full of regret and shame, and now they are attempting to cover up, trying to cover their tracks, trying to hide from God. Folks, this is what we do when we rebel as well. We try to fix it with our own human effort, and that doesn't go very far, does it? Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of our righteous efforts are to God like filthy rags. Our efforts to cover our own sin and shame, it's like being covered in rags. And here they're trying to hide from God. They're trying to cover their tracks. This is what David did after he sinned with Bathsheba. What does he try to do? He tries to cover it up by murdering Uriah. And things go from bad to worse. This is what happens when we try to, through our own human effort and our own human deeds, try to fix what we have broken. Try to cover our sin and shame. We can't cover our sin. And the truth is we can run, but we can't hide from God. Amen? We can't hide from God. Here they're trying to. Now, those eight verses are pretty dark. We just be honest about that. This is not a good look for humanity. Rebelling, covering, hiding. It's very dark. But I'm thankful that the story of humanity does not end in chapter 3 and verse 8. This is not the end of the story. And I want you, yes, I want you to think seriously about temptation. I want you to think seriously about rebellion. I want you to, to think seriously about our crafty enemy who wants to draw us, lure us away from God. Because he tries to do that with you as well as he tries to do that with me. He does the same thing to you and to me that he does with Eve. So I want you to think about that. But I also want you to have hope. That, that your destiny does not have to be rebellion. Your destiny does not have to be human covering and human shame and human hiding. No, there's more to the story. And it, it takes the rest of the Bible to unfold God's love for his runaway, runaway children. Here he's made Adam and Eve. He loves them, but they choose to run from him. The rest of the Bible is how God chases after runaways. And I am thankful that he chases after runaways because that means he chases after me. Amen? And we see a couple of glimpses that I don't want you to miss, even in these verses, a couple of glimpses that point us forward with anticipation to redemption. There is anticipation of God's redemptive work, even in this text. And I want you to see it in two images, okay? Image number one is the image of covering. Think about it. Here they've sinned against God, and what's their impulse? Their impulse is to cover it up, to try to fix it through their own human effort, but they can't. Their covering is inadequate. The truth is Adam and Eve could not cover their sin and shame, and neither can you, neither can I. But this is a glimpse that points us forward to one who can cover our sin and shame. Because although Adam and Eve could not cover their sin, God was going to provide a covering for them in their sin and shame. In fact, I told you, Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 says, all of our righteousnesses are as to God like filthy rags, right? So our attempts to cover ourselves is like rags. it's, It's insufficient. But do you know that if you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, a miracle happens, 
God takes you and he wraps you up in righteousness. The Bible says that he actually clothes you. When you become a Christian, when you give your life to Christ, you actually get clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah, just three chapters before chapter 64, and Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10 says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God for he has, let's say this together, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. You see, here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though because of our rebellion, we are covered in sin and shame and our attempts to cover ourselves is just filthy rags. The good news and the hope of the gospel is that God loves you so much that if you will give your life to Christ, if you will run to him for mercy, God will wrap you up in the robes of his righteousness. He will clothe you in the garments of salvation, which means that one day when you die and face God the judge, he will look at you and he will not see you in your sin and shame. If you are in Christ, he will see nothing short of the righteousness of his own son. That's what it means to be in Christ. If you think about, if you, think about uh, you in all of your sin and shame, coming to Christ and Christ, you're in Christ. What, what's happening is that Christ is actually wrapping you up in his righteousness so that God doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see your shame. He sees the holiness of Jesus. He doesn't see your guilt. He sees the salvation that Jesus brings. You are in Christ and he will cover, truly cover your sin and your shame and wrap you up in the robes of, in Christ, you move from rags to robes. It's why we sing that great hymn, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. That means no matter who you are or what you've done, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you will one day stand before God the judge as faultless, not because of any inherent goodness in you, but simply because of the righteousness of God's own son. And when we run to him for mercy, he just robes us in his righteousness. That's redemption. It's coming. It's later in the story. We don't have it in Genesis 3, but Genesis 3 is just something that points us forward to a greater covering that's going to happen. Here's the beauty. I love the way Mac Brunson puts it. He says, listen, if we, if we cover our sin, God will uncover it. But if we will uncover our sin, God will cover it. If you try to hide, if you try to cover, if you try to fix, God has a way of exposing but if instead you will just come to God in all of your sin and guilt and shame and just say, God, here, here I am. I'm uncovering it. Then he will cover it over with his righteousness. That's why Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose sin has been covered. And if you know Christ, your sin is covered in Christ's righteousness. But there's one other image <clears throat> that I, wanna, I want you to see it in the text. And it has to do with Trees, all right? You say, trees? Yes, trees. Have you noticed how many trees are in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? It's an interesting theme. There's all kinds of trees. You have God creating all the trees in Genesis chapter 2. He says, you can eat from any tree except for the one tree. Satan tempts Adam and Eve to, to take from the tree that they're not supposed to eat from. When they do that, then they try to cover themselves over by taking leaves from a fig tree and, and covering, and then they hide. And where do they hide? In chapter 3 and verse 8? 
They hide in the trees. So there's something really interesting here about trees. And I've been working this over in my mind for two weeks. What's the deal with all the trees in the story? And then I got to thinking, trees are actually important, not just in Genesis, they're important throughout the, the Bible. These are not the last trees that we read about. There are other trees, important trees in the Bible. For instance, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 21 and verse 23, you have this very obscure Jewish law that has to do with trees and curses. Look at, look at it on the screen. This is a, a Jewish law for execution, all right? This is what you all came here to learn about today, isn't it? You are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight. This is referring to somebody who might have been hung on a tree by execution. Don't leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but you are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. <clears throat> now, that's really interesting. And, and it kind of makes sense, right? If, if the curse came into the world because Eve and Adam chose to eat the fruit of a forbidden tree, then it would make sense to associate being hung on a tree with some kind of cursing. It's pretty obscure though, right? Cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. But that becomes a little more clear in the New Testament because Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23 actually shows up again in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, the apostle Paul quotes Deuteronomy. And listen to what he says. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, and here he quotes Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Do you see what's happening? In Galatians 3 and verse 13, Paul is saying, a curse came because someone chose a tree. And forevermore, anybody who's associated with being hung on a tree is considered cursed. But there's someone else who chose a tree. And his name is Jesus. And the reality is a curse was brought into this world because Adam and Eve chose to eat from a tree. But Galatians tells us that the curse of sin can be removed because Jesus also chose a tree. And he was willing to die on the cross, on that tree of Golgotha, to pay the penalty, to take the curse for your sin and my sin, for Adam and Eve's sin, for our rebellion. Jesus takes all of that cursing on a different tree in a different garden so that the curse can be removed and we can be redeemed. The tree of the garden points us forward to the tree of Golgotha. But folks, that's not the only or the last tree you read about in the New Testament. You know there's one more. Can I share it with you? It's found on the last page of your Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Look, look at what God's Word says, because uh, there's one more tree that's very, very important mentioned at the end of your Bible. It's interesting because the only other place that you see it mentioned is in Genesis 2, and that is the tree of life. You remember about that tree? We read about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And for most of the Bible, the tree of life just kind of disappears off the scene until you get to the last page of your Bible. And John here is describing the new creation. Listen to what he says. Revelation 22, beginning of verse 1. He says, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. And the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree, let's say this together, are for, the healing, are for healing the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. You see, 
there is coming a day when the curse itself will be removed and the tree of cursing that was present in the garden will become the tree of healing for the nations and the curse will be fully lifted because of the work of Christ on that tree in Golgotha. That's a reverse of the curse, folks. Yeah, you can celebrate that. What was fractured in Genesis is restored in Revelation. The tree of cursing becomes a tree of healing, a reverse of the curse. Paradise lost, that's Genesis. Paradise restored through the work of Jesus we see in the book of Revelation. It's restored because of a second Adam named Jesus. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam was faithful. The first Adam brought sin and shame. The second Adam brought salvation. The first Adam brought guilt. The second Adam brings grace and God's glory. It's why John Milton, the great English poet, said, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. I am thankful for the one greater man who came to restore us and regain the blissful seat. Amen? Let's bow together. If you know this Jesus, you have reason to celebrate and worship and serve God for the rest of your life. And that should be our response. If you don't know Jesus yet, and you'd say, Pastor, I am walking in sin and shame and rebellion and guilt, and I've been trying to fix it, let me just tell you, Jesus can cover your sin. He can robe you in his righteousness. And he took a tree for you so that you can be healed. If you've never come to Jesus for salvation, we don't want you to leave this place without knowing Jesus in that way, without having your guilt removed and your sin and shame covered. So in just a moment, when I pray, people are going to be streaming out of this room. We're going to have a couple of folks down here at the front, prayer partners who will linger. This is your invitation. If you don't know Jesus in this way and you want your sin forgiven and your guilt covered, you just come forward and talk with them and they'll share with you how you can do that. Lord, we are so thankful for the tree of Calvary. We're thankful for the work of our second Adam. We pray that we may sing and serve well in his name for your glory. Amen.